Hello and welcome to Taking the Lead, a podcast from the Radiology Leadership Institute that profiles radiologists as leaders, seeking insight and inspiration from a variety of perspectives and experiences. I'm Jeff Rubin. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Vivian Lee, a senior lecturer at the Harvard School of Medicine and executive fellow at the Harvard Business School. Dr. Lee recently ranked 11th on Modern Healthcare's list of the 100 most influential people in healthcare. A radiologist and MR researcher, Dr. Lee has served as president and founder of Health Platforms at Verily, CEO of the University of Utah's Health System, Dean of the University of Utah School of Medicine, and Chief Scientific Officer and Senior Vice President of the New York University Medical Center. She is a Rhodes Scholar, a member of the National Academy of Medicine, past president of the International Society for Magnetic Resonance in Medicine, and the author of the widely acclaimed book, The Long Fix. As a regular listener to the podcast, I know you understand the importance of leadership development. And if you're like many of our listeners, you may be facing a variety of workforce-related challenges in your practice. The RLI recognizes these challenges and is here to provide the innovative and practical solutions that you need at the 2024 RLI Summit. The 2024 Summit will take place September 6th to 8th at the Seaport Hotel in Boston. You'll learn from radiology thought leaders and business school experts about topics such as optimizing operations within a limited resource environment, building high-quality connections, and decision-making to overcome scarcity. You'll also have a chance to put your learnings into practice during two interactive real-world case sessions with your peers. The summit is an immersive weekend of high-impact education, inspiration, and collaboration with the best and brightest in the specialty. Early bird pricing is in effect through April 30th, so I encourage you to register now at acr.org slash summit. These are the best rates that will be available for this very special program. I look forward to seeing you there. Vivian, welcome. Thanks so much, Jeff. Let's start at the beginning. Where were you born and raised? I was born in Morristown, New Jersey, when my parents were working at Bell Labs, and I grew up in Norman, Oklahoma. Norman, Oklahoma. At, at what age did you go to Oklahoma? I think it was around fourth or fifth grade. Okay. So you had some growing up in New Jersey, some growing up in Oklahoma, and your folks were both working at Bell Labs. What were they doing there? Oh, well, it was the early days of computers, as you can imagine. And my so my dad was working as an electrical engineer, and my mom was a computer programmer. And then at night, she was going to NYU to get her PhD. Wow. A PhD in? In operations research. And then she went on to really specialize more in statistics. So her career has really been in statistics and in public health. I like to joke that these days, my parents, my mother would be called a data scientist because she's a statistician. And my father would be called an AI expert because that's actually the field that he worked in neural networks and in addition to working on some of the hardware. Neat. And what drew them then to Norman from New Jersey? 
Well, we didn't go directly, but the way we ended up in Norman was both of my parents are academics. And at that time, you know, it was in the early days, there weren't that many couples where both were looking at tenure jobs. And so they had a few choices. They were new to this country. And of the different choices that they had, they thought Oklahoma looked good. And so that's where we ended up. Great. And and what was it like growing up in Norman, Oklahoma? It sounds like it's would be a small town. Norman, Oklahoma is a college town. It's where the University of Oklahoma is. We of course enjoyed being in an academic environment. Uh, of course that shaped me the course of my career, but it's also a big sports town. So I grew up in the era of Barry Switzer with the Oklahoma Sooners. And then later on, just as I was leaving, basketball was getting pretty good with Wayman Tisdale showing up on the scene eventually. So I grew up going to a lot of football games, cheering. I'm programmed to cheer for red and white football teams, I'm just going to tell you. So I had a lot of good memories growing up in Norman, Oklahoma, a lot of good people there. It sounds fantastic. And so growing up, in addition to athletics, you spent some time in connection with the university environment. Any other particular interfaces that you recall that were influential to you? You know, when I was in middle school, I had a very influential teacher in the sense that she set up the shadowing programs for the kids with various community leaders. It was pretty random how we were assigned, but through that program, I got to meet somebody who was very influential in my life, one of the prominent internists in our town, Dr. Hal Belknap. And over the years, he he really had a, a huge influence in that I shadowed him on his Saturday morning rounds at Norman Regional Hospital and got introduced to medicine. I We didn't have any physicians in the family, so that was my first exposure to a doctor, to the doctor-patient relationship, just you know, to everything. And he was also the scoutmaster for this explorer, these two different explorer groups, one that was for people who were interested in medicine. So of course I participate in that. And the second was a more of an adventure explorer group, which I also joined. So uh, I got to do a lot of really fun things after meeting Dr. Belknap. So, so that was a Wow, that, big, that's big excellent. And, and so you were attracted to medicine even at that stage around middle school? Well, I just, you know, we started doing it in at the end of middle school and then really through junior high was really probably the, the bulk of it. And yes, I really, you know, I didn't understand much about what he was really talking about, as you can imagine, but I did really, you know, he was a very relational guy. His patients were really devoted to him and he spent a lot of time, you know, this was pre- CAT scanning and MRIs and electronic medical records. And so it was really about sitting at the edge of the bed and listening. You know, he had mostly a senior patient population. So it was really about listening to them and then kind of hearing not only whatever their specific complaints were, but really kind of understanding, oh, you know, we might need to think about how her son's coming into town and how that might affect her ability to stay on top of her medications because it's going to be disruptive to her life. So maybe the nurse ought to do a little extra check-in or, you know, whatever it was. He, he just, he taught me from the very beginning to think about people as people and not as patients. And I think that, you know, really, anyway, it was, it was, it was really, really interesting to watch. And, and I love the fact that, you know, what really stuck with me is they adored him. You know, this was like, he was really impacting their lives for the better. And I thought that was so amazing. Fantastic to have that type of mentorship at such an early 
age. Mm -hmm. Any other hobbies or activities you pursued growing up? Hobbies. You know, I have to say I had a pretty care. Well, I I guess I would say that when I got to college, I felt like I was one of the few people who I, I could never admit that I played the piano because people just assume that I had had a concert somewhere and I was very mediocre <laughs> at all those kinds of activities because I really didn't throw myself into it very much and my parents never pushed me at all. So other activities, you know, just the, the usual kind of things, I guess. I, I did a lot of reading when I was young and I watched a lot of TV. I have to admit that, confess that. I spent summers doing work, doing different kinds of jobs like painting houses, you know, putting in fences, kind of odd jobs. So kind of there's a little hidden handyman kind of element, which people don't really expect from me, but you know, that kind of thing. That's pretty cool. Was that completely self-motivated going out to get those jobs? Yeah, I think I must've done something early and then just, I really enjoyed it. Like I really liked painting. I really like, and so I helped out. I was a helper. Obviously I wasn't, I wasn't running my own business or anything, but I was helping out and I was not bad at it. So I really liked doing it, especially indoor painting. Nice. Really great. And did you have any brothers and sisters growing up? Yeah, I have a younger sister. She's about six and a half years younger than me. Terrific. And through high school, did you recall any early leadership experiences, anything that you did that introduced you to the leadership realm? You know, one thing that happened in high school that was really, again, another really lucky turn was in in my high school, I I went to a big public high school and maybe half of the class went to college, mostly locally, of course. But in my junior year, one of our teachers, Dr. Drennan, math teacher, decided to start a new program to introduce calculus into the curriculum. And, you know, my school did not offer AP classes. You know, we, we were not in that kind of supercharged academic sense. You know, it was a good school. It was a good school. I learned a lot. But introducing calculus into the high school was really radical. <laughs> and I think it was at that point that I, I guess I sort of felt like he really opened our eyes to advancing or accelerated learning in ways that I had never thought about before. And so after taking his introductory course, which we took, we took some calculus in junior year, which, you know, I guess was, was pretty good. I ended up going off and taking some classes at the University of Oklahoma. And I'm sure people had done it in the past, but I really sort of threw myself into it because I, it just felt like this whole world was opening up to me. You know, I could take all kinds of interesting classes and really advance. I was particularly interested in math and engineering. And so I was able to take some pretty advanced I think I went, I did three semesters of calculus, two semesters of what was called an engineering math, which was differential equation. You know, I was able to kind of really progress quite a lot in these different areas. And I think after I did that, quite a few other people started to, to look into that. So I don't know if that's called leadership. I was just pursuing my own interest at the time. Trailblazing, at least, no doubt. Sounds like it was a great opportunity, a great way to leverage being in the university town. Now, you graduated high school fairly early at the age of 16. Is that right? Oh, that is right. You did some, you did some math on my CV, huh? <laughs> That's earlier than most high school graduates. Uh, how, how, did that, how did that come about? Okay, not a big deal. I skipped kindergarten. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, so, I mean, clearly I you were ready for it. Great. So it wasn't, 
But it did have an impact. <laughs> it's funny that you say that because it did have an impact when I went to college in a way that you would not necessarily expect. So when I went to university, I was put into a dorm. So all of the freshmen in, in the different dorms had a graduate advisor living, you know, maybe one for every 30 or something, something like that, just to look out over us, you know. And because I had done a fair amount of math, as I mentioned, and because I probably because I was younger also, I was put into this dorm group of what I call geniacs. You know, I mean, really math prodigies who were, you know, maybe 14, 15. I don't know. I don't even remember. But I just remember thinking, wow, I am not one of you. So <laughs> I think being a little younger might have, uh, you know, people might have mistaken me for something that I was definitely not. And I learned, I learned actually what real math, math prodigies really were like, which is pretty amazing. Very humbling. Very amazing. Yeah. I, I had a similar experience with a 12-year-old undergrad at Caltech when I was there. It was very humbling <laughs> as, as well. You know, I, I don't want to embarrass you, but I just have to call out, you were also recognized as a presidential scholar, which is an amazing accomplishment, particularly at the age of 16. What was the criteria by which you were recognized with that award? Wow, Jeff, you are very thorough. I have not thought about that in a long time. The Presidential Scholar Program, which still exists today, is a really wonderful program that I think it's grown since then, but it basically has two components. There are the academic kids who are selected, maybe two per state, I want to say. And I think the initial screening criteria are standardized tests. And then after that, you have to write essays and I, I can't remember what, but you have to do a few few other things. And then so from that group, they choose two per state. And then there's a separate, and that's the side that I went through. Then there's the side that's much more interesting to me, which is the arts and writers and you know really gifted people. And they have, I don't know what number of those as well. And they bring all of us to Washington, DC. It felt like it was about a week. I don't know, maybe three or four days. I'm not sure. And you get to go around and meet your senators and your congressmen. And there's a reception where the president makes an appearance, usually, and for our year did. And really, it's phenomenal. And then you go to the Kennedy Center in D.C., because this is all happening in D.C., of course. And those artsy students, that group, go up and do this performance, which is just phenomenal. And of course, you know, these are a lot of these kids you end up seeing in college or seeing, you know, doing really going on and doing great things. But yeah, that's... That was the presidential scholarship. Yeah, what, what, what an amazing accomplishment and a cohort to be affiliated with. That's tremendous. Sure. And, and really lucky. I mean, it was, you know, a lot of those things are just really luck in the draw, but that was really, really, really fun. Great. Now, you started to speak about your college experience. You went to Radcliffe. Was that still a, an all-women's college at the time that you went? Oh, actually, I went to Harvard. So we, okay. we, I use the way I put it on my, you know, when I describe it is I call it Harvard Radcliffe because at the time when I went there, I think it was still called just Harvard University, but on some of the materials it was called Harvard Radcliffe. So I always thought it was good to include the Radcliffe. But at that time, I went to Harvard after everything was all merged. And so it was really just. Gotcha. So, okay. It was the main Harvard college that you were a part of. And, and what did you study? I think on my diploma, it's, uh, it may say, I don't know, I have to go, well, it probably just says Harvard University, but on some things that I received, it said Harvard Radcliffe. So I was like. What did you study while at Harvard? 
I majored in biochemical sciences, so essentially biochemistry. I was pre-med and majoring in biochem allowed me to fulfill my pre-med requirements and I was able to take engineering courses for my advanced electives for the major. So that's how I ended up in biochemistry. And was it common at that point to have an engineering orientation within the context of a pre-medical curriculum? Not really. No. No. But we had a a professor who was really special, and he focused a lot on – he had some courses that were really about mathematical modeling of biological systems – so his name was Tom McMahon. He's, he's passed away, but he was, what a gem. He actually used a lot of his engineering skills to help design the running track at Harvard. And I, according to the legend, it set some records, you know, as a result of the angle and the design of it and so on. So, but he taught a class that I really loved, which was using mathematical models to look at the cardiovascular system and respiratory system and muscle, you know, using RC circuits. You probably took something like that if you went to Caltech, you know, but for us at Harvard, it was a little bit unusual and was really terrific. But there were very few pre-meds in those classes, I have to say, even though it would have fit. What, what were you envisioning for your career at that point? Were you thinking that your goal was just to blend engineering and medicine in a career or was engineering sort of a, a bit of a hobby with medicine being the main focus? Well, that's a really great question because really for me, I think I would have been an engineer or had I ever taken economics, I might have even become an economist, but I never took any economics. So I didn't really know that there was that option if you were sort of mathematically inclined. And so I'd say my passion was more on the math and engineering side. The interest in medicine came from that interaction with Dr. Belknap and kind of as a career, it seemed like it it was a good area to aspire to. But I hadn't, honestly, I was not thinking particularly strategically about what I was going to do and why. And I just loved the engineering classes. So I took them and plotted through organic chemistry because I had to. (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. But you seem to plot pretty effectively because you completed your undergraduate education magna cum laude in just three years. Graduating from Harvard at the age of 19, were, were you trying to get through it quickly in order to get to the next stage, or did it just sort of fall into place that way? At the time, Harvard had a program where if you passed a certain number of AP exams, they would grant you sophomore standing. And although I told you that my high school did not offer AP classes, by the time I was applying to college, someone introduced me to this idea that you could take AP classes and get credit for it. And so I self-studied and I think my mom or my dad drove me to Oklahoma City or someplace so I could take these tests at another school. And I managed to pass whatever the minimum number was. And so I had, and you know, I was, I just remember I had come from Norman, Oklahoma. I accrued quite a few credits at the University of Oklahoma. So had I gone to OU, I could have graduated in shorter time And I was thinking about the financial savings, you know, saving your college tuition is a pretty big deal. So when I went and I took all those tests, you know, that was what was in my mind. And then by the time I got to my third year in college where I had senior standing, I was sort of equivocal about whether I wanted to graduate or not. I had fulfilled all the requirements, but there was a part of me that wanted to just 
have a year where I could take all these classes that I'd never taken before. For example, it's just part of my liberal arts curriculum. I'd taken some Shakespeare, I'd taken some modern art. And so those had just whetted my appetite for taking more interesting classes like that. So I was sort of teetering. And it was at that point that I had been looking at medical school applications. You know, again, I wasn't wasn't sure and what to do about that. And then an advisor in our dorm who was responsible for helping us apply for various fellowships reached out to me and said, you know, there are these fellowships called the Rhodes Scholarship and the Marshall Scholarship. And I really think you should apply because I think you'd be a great candidate for it. And I declined. I, I said, you know, I, I'm going to medical school. I, I, I don't know, like, why would I want to go off to England? And, you know, the medical school is going to take me forever. So why, why do I want to do that? And he was very persistent, Jeff. He was really persistent. And so finally, one day he said, look, you've written a medical school essay, haven't you? And I said, yeah, I, I'm almost done with it. And he said, well, I'm just going to take that and send that over to these guys, if that's okay with you. <laughs> and of course, you know, so fine, go ahead and just send it up. And so the next thing, you know, long, long and short of it is I get the scholarship to go to Oxford. And so then I had to graduate. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, amazing. Great to have such a supportive sponsor like that. And so impressive. Off you were for your Rhodes Scholarship at, at Oxford. And I, I guess once awarded, it was essentially a no brainer to go ahead and pursue it. Well, you really have to. It's really, the Rhodes Scholarship is really interesting. All of the Rhodes Scholarships are awarded. They're awarded in these different districts across the country and they're awarded the same day. And so there's no waitlist. There's no backup person. So if you don't take the slot, nobody else can fill that slot. So they're pretty clear and, and very few people would want to turn it down anyway, but they're pretty clear from the beginning. If you're here and you're interviewing, you better take it if you get it. So, and of course, most people are, are ecstatic. Yeah. So. I mean, and how exciting, you know, at the age of 19, having spent most of your influential years in you know Norman, Oklahoma, and, and a bit of time in Boston, but then to be across the ocean, essentially on your own in the UK. Oh yeah, talk about an adventure, you know. And and of course, back then, as you well know, there was no internet. You know, a long distance call I remember was sixty cents a minute, so we didn't do too many of those. And so you know, and everything was still by regular mail. So when you when you went over when we went over there it really it really was a world away it really was I think these days having the internet and be able to FaceTime and connect with people you're so we're so much more connected with people but it really did feel like a, a journey far away yeah super exciting and and what did you study when you were in Oxford ah well that's when I finally got to focus on medical engineering. <laughs> so that was my chance to, I, I knew I would come back to medical school and I said, I just really want to just do some engineering for a while. And, and that's what I did there. That, that's great. You know, graduate degrees in engineering usually center on specific domains like mechanical, electrical, or chemical engineering. And your PhD focus was in engineering sciences. How does one interpret that? Sure. Yeah. So the degree I got in Oxford was a DPhil, which is their version of a PhD in medical engineering, which is a part of engineering sciences. And medical engineering, of course, could be anything. It, it's any of those kinds of engineering as you described with medical applications. What I focused on was 
I worked with a professor, Brian Bellhouse, who was a serial inventor. And so when I came around, happened to the project that I happened to stumble into was what he was focused on, which was kind of an obscure topic, honestly, but it was a good project for a, for a graduate student, which was looking at platelet transfusion packs. So as you know, and I'm sure your listeners know, platelets are these cells in the blood that are essential for clotting. And they're very important when people are depleted of, of platelets, it's important to have these cells that you can transfuse into people. And when they're healthy, just like their name suggests, they're sort of plate-like shaped cells, sort of round disky. And then after a few days in these packs, they go bad. You know, they sort of wear out their lifespan and they turn into these little round spike balls. And my job was to try to figure out a non-invasive way of tracking the health of these platelets in these platelet transfusion packs. And so the way we did it was we used some light scattering theory. So we shown a, a light, first a laser and then kind of a high powered LED through a transfusion pack and subjected the pack to kind of a fluid, we, we, to some shearing motion in order to, what it, what it did when you do that is it, if the cells were plates, plate-like cells, like healthy platelets, the cells would kind of align and roll in a particular way. And so they're, the light scattering pattern would change with and without the kind of shearing force. Whereas if they were just round spiky balls, nothing, you know, the light scattering pattern didn't change at all when you subject them to this. So that was what I worked out. I worked out some of the fluid mechanics, some of the light scattering theory, and then the practicalities of actually making the thing work. And that was my, that was my thesis, my dissertation. Yeah, that's that's really fascinating. It does sound like a, a great project. Although I'll have to say timing is everything. So right after my project, like I said, Professor Bellhouse was a serial engineer. And right after me, he got into the space of needleless injections, you know, really kind of high pressure, high velocity injections, which really took off. And he did a startup and made you know hundreds of millions of, of pounds. And I just thought, ah, oh, you know, if I just been two or three years later, my career might have been a little different, but I, I'm just joking. But anyway. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's super exciting. And so how long were you at Oxford in, in total for all of this? Actually, I was in Oxford for two years and then I came back and I wrote my thesis up during my first year of medical school. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's a quick trip for a PhD and amazing that you were able to focus on writing your thesis during attendance in medical school. You also, you, you met your husband in Oxford too? I did. So some, something very impactful from the, the trip? I did. Yeah, that was very impactful. Absolutely. Yeah. He was also a Rhodes Scholar from New Zealand and was studying international relations and then did a DPhil in international law yeah. there. So yes, it was a very impactful trip over to, to Oxford. Marvelous, marvelous. And so so you came back and you immediately transitioned to medical school, which was done where? At Harvard. At Harvard, back to Harvard. And at what point in medical school did you start thinking about radiology? I did not think about radiology in medical school. So when I was in medical school, I did do a radiology rotation at the Beth Israel, which was a terrific, really great, great experience. I didn't know what I wanted to do when I went into medicine. When I did internal medicine, I enjoyed it a lot, but the pace didn't quite feel right to me. The one thing I thought that I wasn't going to do was surgery. 
So when I had the choice of, or at least we could put in our preferences for where to do surgery, I chose the VA hospital because there were no attendings there. It was run by residents and fellows. And so nobody who was serious about getting into surgery was chose the VA as their, as their hospital. So I thought it would be a little bit more low-key. And they had parking, which I thought was a real plus. So I ended up going and doing surgery at the VA, and I fell in love with it. So what happened was I decided really unexpectedly that I wanted to match in surgery. I did a, a few electives actually in surgery in other medical centers at the University of Michigan and UCSF. And I loved it. I still loved it after that. And when I interviewed, I interviewed only in surgery and I found Duke University to be the most attractive to me because they had no fellows. And so as residents, you actually had more responsibility throughout the whole course of the training program. And I was just really impressed by that program. And so I actually matched in surgery at Duke I have a lot of stories which would take us hours and hours to tell about that experience. What's David Sabiston's? David Sabiston was the chair, and I think I was one of the first women to match there. There, there had been one a few years back. Not, not many had matched there in general surgery. Anyway, after a year, I, I actually really loved general surgery. I really loved the people. I really loved the action of it. But for a variety of reasons, I decided at towards the end of my internship year that it wasn't going to make sense for me. One of the issues was the requirement for additional research time, which I had hoped to be able to negotiate my way out of since I'd already done a PhD. And since I wanted to get married and have kids, and you know, there was a little bit of a biological clock ticking at the same time. And that I was not able to negotiate my way out of that. So there were other factors. It was actually... I loved surgery. My only claim to fame that year, because I don't know if I was any good at it, but my claim to fame was I was the only intern who stayed awake through every single grand rounds that year. And which before duty hours was pretty remarkable, I have to say, you know. <laughs> that is impressive because I'm kind of joking about all this, but I, I, I really loved it. Then what happened was I had met Carl Raven, who was the chair of radiology. I had met Carl Actually, back when I was a fourth year medical student, knowing that I was going to go to Duke, I had gone down to Durham and spent a couple of weeks, a couple of months, sorry, doing elective rotations, one in the CCU and one in radiology, because I thought it'd be really helpful to learn a little more radiology before going into surgery. And I had met Carl then. And I remember Carl at the end of that rotation saying to me, essentially, you know, Vivian, I know you're coming here to do surgery. I started in surgery too. He, he had also made this change in his career. And when you see the light, just come and knock on my door. So actually, I ended up doing that. So towards the end of my internship, I had decided not to move forward. I had some offers from several of the surgeons to work in their labs and to do other things, you know, to stay in surgery, which was really, really kind. But then Carl said, hey, I hear you. I hear you might be interested. And one of the students who had matched had changed their mind. And so there was an opening. And so next thing you know, I slotted right into that radiology, one of the best radiology residency programs in the country. So how lucky is that? Yeah, no, what a great story. And I can certainly hear Carl saying exactly that. Having spent time at Duke myself, I, I can attest that Sabiston was a legendary figure. And I, did, I, did, I just do want to ask if there's any particular events that you recall 
where he or his leadership influenced you in a particular way? You know, starting from the very first day. So I had a really, like I said, I can go on for hours about stories, but one story that I will share is that when I was finishing medical school, I don't know if you remember this, but the PBS or Nova was filming a series where they were following medical students through medical school and through residency. I don't know if you remember that. That had started with the year above me in medical school. And it turns out that none of them had gone into surgery. So they dipped into our class and I was asked if I could please be willing to join that cohort and have this TV crew follow me through my training in surgery at Duke. Okay. So what does that mean? So of course, I didn't feel like I had that much of a choice, so I agreed. And what that meant was day one of my surgical internship at Duke with Dr. Sabston, I show up with a camera crew and I am supposed to be pre-rounding, you know, before and, and every time I go into a patient room, before I go into a patient room, these folks have to go in and consent the patient to be videoed. I mean, there's this huge, and you know, my whole strategy was to be super low key. You know, when you're, especially when you're one of the first women to come into a programming, the last thing you want to do is draw a lot of attention to yourself. And there I was with this mess. Okay. So the first night I'm on call because this camera crew has to experience what it's like for an intern to be on call. So obviously I have to be on call. And then of course I have to be the intern who gets called on to present a case to Dr. Sabiston at Sabiston Rounds the next day, or at, at, actually it wasn't Rounds, it was like the, the big conference, because they needed to film that too. So I'm up all night on my first day of internship, not having a clue what I'm doing. I didn't even know where the bathrooms were, Jeff, you know? And I remember I had to present a case of appendicitis. And I don't know, your listeners may not know, you will know from having spent time there, but Dr. Sabiston he was really trying to train a generation or many generations of great surgeons. And part of being a great surgeon in his mind was you really needed to understand the history. You needed to understand what happened back in the day in 17 something something when the first case of appendicitis was described and then the evolution of our understanding of the disease and then how we've come to be where we are today. And every resident really had to memorize and present to him in this sort of almost ritualistic, very formal way, these kind of stories and these histories. And so that's what I did. And now it's been like 30 years. So it is fading away from my memory, but I can tell you for like 15 or 20 years, I could tell you the history of appendicitis. It was seared into my memory from that experience and also captured on film on some videotape somewhere probably. But he, he was really, for all of his toughness and, you know, all the stories that were told about him, he was trying to train great leaders. And I'll tell you one last thing when, before we leave this topic, I was asked to, to give a talk at the American Surgical Association meeting last year, or maybe now it's two years ago, post COVID. And it was fantastic. It was such a privilege, you know, to be able to, to lead a plenary session. What was amazing about it was when I went to that meeting, I was reunited with maybe six or seven people who I had trained with just in that year, because obviously I moved into radiology. So people who were either interns with me or junior residents or senior residents or fellows. 
six or seven of them who were chairs. This was a meeting mostly of, of chairs of, of departments across the country. And that's a remarkable achievement for somebody like Dr. Sabison to have, have built that kind of leadership program and instilled those values and those capabilities. So, so I admire him a lot. Yeah. No, thank you for sharing that. Now, there were a number of iconic leaders in radiology during your training years at Duke as well. Who amongst them would you single out as particularly influential to you in your career? Oh, that's too hard of a question. That's like asking, you know, which of your kids is your favorite? You know, that, that can only get me in trouble. I didn't say you only <laughs> could mention one. <laughs> yeah, that can only get me in trouble. So I will say that Carl, because of our already talking about Carl and as the chair of the department, he did have a pretty significant impact on my career. Obviously, first of all, taking me into the department and welcoming me in the department. But also since then, you know, he has over the years lent a friendly ear and given me some good career advice. And and I think one thing that I, I really admire about Carl was he, when he was running the faculty practice at Duke, was I think an exception. I mean, there aren't that many radiology leaders who then take on leadership roles for the health system. And he was somebody who I think he he stood up for radiology and he wasn't afraid to do that. And I think in that respect also, he was a, a good role model. Excellent. Excellent. Now, upon completing your residency at Duke, you headed to New York University for a fellowship in body magnetic resonance imaging and thoracic imaging. What ex- inspired you to go to NYU? Well, NYU, that's a really great question. So I decided after during my residency to really focus on MRI. It was something that sort of naturally suited me as having this engineering background. And the part of MRI that I was the most interested in was body. And as a body radiologist yourself, you will understand why that is, of course, the most interesting part of the, the system to focus on. <laughs> and there aren't that many, or at the time, there weren't that many really great departments that were focusing on body MR. Of course, there's great neuro, great musculoskeletal, not a lot of body MR places. And NYU remarkably had three fantastic body MR radiologists who I know are, are friends of yours too. So Jeff Weinreb, Neil Rofsky, and Glenn Krinsky. And they had a terrific, really top-notch fellowship program. And I had asked for advice from a guy at Duke, Dirk Sossman, who had then moved up to Cornell. And so he knew the New York landscape. I was interested in going to New York also because my husband was getting a job there. And I asked him, you know, Dirk, what do you think? Where should I go? And he said, oh, my goodness, NYU, if you want to do body MR. And so I never looked back. That was the most amazing, amazing program. In most places, they might have been doing three or four body MRI cases a day. And I think we were easily doing more than a dozen when I started and more than 20, you know, by the end. So it was a high volume, really high quality, high quality program. Yeah. Great, great selection and great group of people there, no doubt. Now, upon completion of your fellowship, you assume the title of director of cardiothoracic MR imaging at NYU. Was that a new position that was created for you or did you succeed someone in that role? My recollection is that that was a new position. I was very interested in cardiac MR. You remember Jim Chen, Dr. Chen at Duke, who was a cardiac radiologist. He really inspired me a lot. And that was mostly plain film work. And so when I got into MR, I was really interested. You know, I happened to be getting in just at the time when MR was taking off. And so 
we started to get the feeling we could even do beating heart images and dream of real time imaging, you know. So when I did my fellowship, I spent some time with body MR and then I did one day a week in the chest section just to do a little bit of chest, to, to look a little bit at the heart. And so when I finished, it felt like there was an opportunity to advance cardiac MR. And that was something I was interested in doing. And so I guess the department felt that that was worthy of, a, of an area of focus. Yeah. You know, at this point, you're in your early 30s and you're taking on a leadership role in at NYU. How important was it to you to assume a leadership position right away as you began your academic career? It's interesting because I know your series is focused on leadership and I've listened to several of the of the podcasts. They're really, really wonderful and so inspiring. I never really aspired for leadership positions. It just never, it never really occurred to me. And I'm really struck by that now because I'm approached so often by young people who say, Dr. Lee, how can I become a hospital CEO or how can I? And I'm thinking, wow, maybe you can first finish your residency training program. You know, <laughs> I didn't think that way when I was younger. So my main focus at that time was I wanted to be able to see whether we could build a service that could bring together the cardiologist and the radiologist. There had already been a divide when it came to echo. And I really hoped that the MR, since the machine was not so easy to just buy and stick into your clinic, you know, I thought, well, maybe, maybe with MR, we can really start to work together again with our cardiology colleagues. And that was my, my goal. So, you know, I went to cardiac conferences. I tried to share as much as I could. I tried to do research projects collaboratively, you know, with, and there were several people in the cardiology department there who were really open and amenable to it. So that's really was my focus. It was more that and not, not so much focused on a particular leadership title or anything. Did you feel that you were able to be successful in building a joint program with cardiology? I felt like we were able to do some really good research projects. I think when it came to clinical practice, it was just easier to get the echo. Echo was something that was more familiar to everybody in cardiology and of course accessible. We did do some work. That was the time when delayed gadolinium enhancement for looking at myocardial viability was just taking off and some of the initial true FISP or, you know, CINE gradient echo imaging to look at the beating heart was just taking off. So the viability imaging occasionally was something that they felt was going to be really clinically useful that they couldn't do in any other way. And so we, we did build a little practice around that. But I think in the end of the day, without the training, without having cardiology, at least at that time, I'm, I'm speaking about, you know, in the, in the late 90s and early 2000s, at, at that time, without the cardiologist feeling 100% comfortable with the technology, it was hard to get a lot of traction. It was less about turf. It was really just more about familiarity and comfort level. So I think that probably held us back. Yeah, I understand. Now, during your early years at NYU, you were awarded a NIH K-23 award, which is a mentored research career development award. K awards are relatively uncommon in radiology departments. What led you to pursue it? And were you glad that you did? Oh, sure. Yeah. So I, my goal in radiology was to be an academic. I loved practicing. I loved teaching. You know, my job was to teach MR physics. I loved doing that. And then I really loved research. And that was one of the things that 
was such a great fit was working with Jeff and Neil and Glenn because they were all really into all three as well. So we all, we were very, very compatible. And when I was in, in, in my fellowship year, we had observed something that we thought was really interesting, which was one of the things back then, we were doing a lot of vascular MR. I feel a little funny talking to you about this because you're an, as much of an expert in this as anybody else, but your listeners may not be. So so for your listeners, we were working on injecting gadolinium doses in people and then timing it just so that gadolinium was, say, passing through the aorta if we wanted to image the aorta or passing through the renal arteries if we wanted to image the renal arteries. And one of the challenges of, of getting that right was getting the timing right. Because depending on a person's cardiac output, it might take 10 seconds to get from their arm vein to the area of interest, or it might take 25 seconds. And that was the difference between a great set of images and a really unusable set of images. So one of the things that the team at NYU had started doing before I got there was what was called a test dose. We would give a little dose, say one cc or one milliliter of the gadolinium, and just see, measure how long it would take before the transit time really from the arm vein into, let's say, the abdominal aorta. And one of the things that we observed when I was in my fellowship year was when you just looked at that one cc of gadolinium, as it went through the aorta, we watched it for about a minute just routinely, you could actually see the gadolinium, that one cc light up the kidneys in a really interesting pattern. It would first light up the renal cortex, and then after maybe a few seconds, it would then filter into the medulla. And then over time, it would start to collect in the collecting system. And gadolinium is, is a contrast agent that is freely filtered at the glomerulus. It's perfect for looking at renal function in, as in terms of glomerular filtration, if we go back to our renal physiology days. And so it was from that observation that gave rise to a project that I think was first funded by the RSNA and a little seed grant where I started to look at whether gadolinium could be useful to measure kidney function as an adjunct to our use of it already for, you know, looking at renal arteries, for example. And that project is what led to the K Award. So I'd gotten the RSNAC grant, very grateful for that. The preliminary data from that then led to the K Award, which then led to several R01s. Yeah. So, and I was very early... I was one of the earliest people to receive that K-word. They just started that program. So I was very, very lucky. Well, the, the work spoke for itself. I mean, I, re, I still remember when you, you know, began presenting those data and it was just really innovative work. It was fa fantastic. Now, Bob Grossman, who was our guest on the podcast for episode 42, assumed the role of the chair of the Department of Radiology in 2001. Three years after you began your faculty appointment, how did his arrival into the department change it and your opportunities within it? Well, as you know, from knowing Bob, both in the podcast and outside the podcast, Bob is a force of nature. He's, he's really incomparable, I'd say. And when Bob came, and of course, he changed the whole trajectory of my life, my career, my life, and I'm very grateful to him for that. When he came, he arrived from Penn and had just such clarity of vision and such ambition for our department that were articulated from the beginning, unapologetic. We right now have no NIH funding and we are going to become one of the top 10 departments in the country, period. That was it. 
that clarity was an incredibly useful lesson, I have to tell you, Jeff. And then he had, there was a little bit of a kind of a few things happened. And then the next thing you know, he asked me to be his vice chair for research. And at that time I had, I can't remember if I'd gotten the K award or had just gotten the R01. I can't remember, but it was very early in my career. And I remember talking with him about this idea of moving into the top 10. And I remember thinking, wow, Bob, that's kind of a long ways because I think at the time the NIH rankings of departments went down to maybe 52 or 54, and we were not on the list, Jeff. So <laughs> I can't even tell you what our ranking was because we weren't ranked. So getting to the top 10 was pretty aggressive and pretty ambitious. And that got me down this whole path. You know, what, what happened then was I started thinking, well, what would it take for us to get into the top 10? You know, I mean, it, it's not anything we, any of us would have dreamed, but since he planted that stake in the ground, I said, okay. So I, I just started doing some research on my own. And looked up what was it, you know, where did all the funding come for the top 10, the top 10 departments in the country that had the most NIH funding? What were their grants in? I, I concluded that I said to Bob, look, we either have to have a serious pet program, a serious MRI program, or both. That's the only way we're going to get in the top 10. And secondarily, as I studied this, and as I talked to people, I came to a third conclusion also, which was that we needed a program that would invest in infrastructure, that would provide support to our mostly clinical faculty. I, I, I did all this analysis. You know, clinical faculty got more larger grants than basic science faculty. Basic science faculty got more grants. But you really wanted those big clinical grants. That's kind of where the money was. But in order to do that, when as you well know, clinical faculty needed support. We needed statisticians. We needed research coordinators. Ideally, we'd have people who could help administer those grants or even help write some of the grants. And if we invested in that infrastructure, I was convinced it would pay off. It really would because we had terrific ideas, terrific capabilities from a, from a technology perspective, but we were missing maybe what I called the mortar. And so Bob was all in. He said, Vivian, whatever you need, let's do it. Let's build it. And we really built a partnership starting from in the department and then, of course, moving into the, the C-suite for, the, for all of NYU. But he really taught me, you know, if you, set your, if you set your eyes on a particular goal and then you systematically think about it strategically, you know, you only have limited resources. So how do you best deploy those resources? And think about it from a people perspective, not just a resource, you know, think about the capital as a human capital piece, as well as the physical capital side. You could, you could really do a lot. And we did, we really did move the department pretty substantially. I can't remember exactly what number we were, but I, I think by the time I left NYU, we might've been, might've been 12, something like that. I can't remember. Dan Sadek's would know, but we, we moved the department high. That's fantastic. I, th- I think it's particularly impressive and intriguing the extent to which you focused on strategy from the get-go of getting that appointment and that you, you know, aligned with, you know, a big, hairy, audacious goal and really broke down exactly what investments needed to be made in order to get the best return on those investments. So, I mean, clearly you had some aptitude for that kind of that kind of planning it's terrific and and then as you alluded to 6 years into your faculty appointment and during your tenure actually 
you didn't specifically allude to this, but I do want to pivot into it, that six years into your faculty appointment and during your tenure as vice chair, you earned an MBA from the NYU Stern School of Business. And I'm interested in what inspired you to pursue an MBA amongst all of this program development and growth that you were pursuing. And, and what were you specifically hoping to gain from that educational investment? It was really a fluke. I think somebody may have mentioned it and I went online and I just looked up the NYU program and I thought, oh, I we, we lived two blocks away from the business school. So I thought, oh, how convenient is that? And I there was some number to call. And so I picked up the phone and chatted with this woman. And then the next thing I know, I'm doing this MBA. So I, I can't say that was it wasn't that intentional. But once I was in the program, I would like to rewrite history and say it was completely intentional because it was in, so, so helpful. It was so beneficial in so many ways that I hadn't anticipated. And it was so enjoyable because what had happened at that point was I was facing challenges like looking at financial statements, like doing strategy, which I, as you mentioned, I kind of stumbled into it, but not with any particular training and not with any intellectual frameworks or anything to think about. And then we had a lot of operational challenges everywhere, you know, like it was, I can't remember which challenges I was facing at the time, but I remember in the MRI suite frequently at the end of the day, we were two hours behind or for the health, for the medical school as a whole, the IRB approval process took way longer than it needed to. I mean, there were all these operational issues. There were financial things to understand. There's just so many things. And of course you could just make your way through and you can learn on the job, of course. But at business school, these faculty were just sort of distilling the wisdom into pearls and then just handing them over to me. And it was just so easy. It was just so wonderful. They were telling me things that I really wanted to learn and really wanted to understand. And they made it so simple and accessible. And it was just perfect. It was, it was wonderful. I mean, you know, one of my favorite classes I remember in the first year was negotiation. I hadn't really gone to, med- to, to business school to learn negotiation, but what happened in negotiation that was so wonderful was you know, as you move up in administration, it's not so much about you negotiating for yourself. It's other people coming and trying to negotiate with you. So really kind of the art of negotiation is very important in terms of figuring out how to recruit people, how to retain people and how to keep them happy. And so I just learned so much, learned so much in business school. Really, really love that experience. One of the things that really impressed me attending business school for a ways into my career was the opportunity to contextualize a lot of the leadership activities that I either was enmeshed in or that I had experienced in the past within the context of these frameworks, as you alluded to. And I just think that business school in particular can be so especially empowering after one has had some time, some tread on the road, if you will, and is able to, you know, apply those real world circumstances to these frameworks. Totally agree. I totally agree. And of course, also it's an opportunity at that stage in your career, and I'm sure you experienced it too, to spend time with peers in other areas who are facing often similar challenges, but kind of slightly different flavor, but similar. And so that I think was really you know, it just sort of expands your, your thinking as well. Yeah, no doubt. 
Now, after serving as vice chair for research in the department for six years, you assumed the role of chief scientific officer and senior vice president at NYU Medical Center. How did that role come about and what were your primary responsibilities in taking that on? That role came about because Bob Grossman decided to throw his hat into the ring for the dean CEO job at NYU. And he did, and obviously he was chosen, and you know, the rest is history. And when he moved into the C-suite, he invited us, his team, from the radiology department to join him. At the time, actually, interestingly enough, the medical school did not have a chief scientific officer. There had been an administrative person who had had the research portfolio put under them. And so I actually, it was a role that I had some influence in shaping, which was actually really interesting in terms of the support team and kind of how we would, you know, architect it and the areas that we would focus on. But again, I think I was very fortunate in that Bob and I had already created a shared mindset about how we were going to approach the problems, whether in the radiology department or across the entire medical center. And we also, I had come to understand his degree of ambition and aspiration. And I understood that in taking that job, my responsibility was going to bring you know, the whole of the medical school, the whole of the medical center up into the top 25. So that was much more ambitious set of goals. But of course, we also had more resources. And it was it was really amazing, an amazing experience. Sounds like an amazing opportunity. What, what were some of your biggest learning opportunities when transitioning from a departmental to a system-wide role? Oh, how many, how many hours do you have? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that, that the, it was at the system level, you have a few things that are really changing. First, what you have is when you're in the departmental role, the academic piece, especially in a radiology department, I'd say the three legs of the stool are almost equal, you know, you, you, or you can make them equal. You can, you can have your research piece be as important as your clinical work and as important as your teaching. You kind of have that control. And in a radiology department from a financial perspective, how do I describe it? You're kind of more contracted labor. And so it's really different from being at the system level where the economics of the clinical performance are so determinant of your future success in research and education. I mean, if, you know, as they say, no margin, no mission. And so the way in which I realized, I came to realize, I wouldn't have known it, I think, in the department, but as I, one of the things that was really wonderful about the way Bob led the organization was he decided that the group of us, there were basically six of us, would participate in all the conversations. So even though I was responsible for research, I sat at all the meetings with Bernie Birnbaum around hospital operations or with other members of the team around should we acquire that practice? Should we merge with or buy that hospital and so on and so forth? So it was very eye-opening for me to understand the business or learn, start to understand. I don't want to say that I, I fully understood it, but to start to understand the business of healthcare and to appreciate the complexity of our negotiations with the payers, of all of the referral systems and the primary care networks and just everything. 
And although I'd say the research part, which was my purview, which was, you know, obviously all consuming, and we had plenty of work to do there, tons and tons of work there. I think I really came to appreciate just how complex our delivery systems are and how fragile our clinical enterprises, our clinical businesses often are, which is kind of scary when you think about the fact that the research and the education are so dependent on it. The, the other thing that I learned when I moved it to the C-suite was the importance of philanthropy. So there I did have, you know, the many donors are drawn in because of a really important clinical experience, but what they want to donate to is the advancement of science and knowledge and discovery. And so that's, I did get pulled into a world that I had had really no exposure to in radiology. Very few, we have many fewer donors, unfortunately, to radiology. We, we need to fix that, but we have fewer donors than we do, you know, across the entire system, for example. So I like to say that I played best supporting actress, maybe <laughs> best supporting actor to, to Bob's leadership role, but had just a number of really, really interesting experiences there. And that laid a lot of the groundwork for what I had to do when I got to the University of Utah. Yeah. yeah. So it's such a fundamental experience. Development is a, you know, is a muscle that needs to be developed to be able to execute effectively. It's great that you had Bob as, as a mentor in that regard. T turning to your oversight of science, I'm interested in the extent to which, from your role as chief scientific officer, you sought to encourage innovation in service to the operations of the hospital, as opposed to the investigator-initiated research and clinical trials that typically originate within academic departments? Well, I would say it was, it was rather than an either-or, it was really an and there. So, of course, I was very supportive of investigator-initiated research. That's the vast majority of the work that we did and, and most academic medical centers still do, and that's what drives discovery. I did always feel that there was an opportunity, especially for the folks who were interested in health services research, which was a growing field at the time and, of course, continues to grow now. I always thought there was an opportunity for the health services researchers to work collaboratively with the delivery side, you, leveraging the delivery systems, experiences, data, patient population for the benefit of both so that we could learn and create a continuous learning system within our delivery system. And that that could be beneficial to our communities because they would be, it would be just like the way we think about offering clinical trials and new, new pharmaceuticals or new medical devices to our patients in an academic medical center. If we did it right with health services research, we could innovate and develop new ways of communicating, of co-decision making, for example, of thinking about addressing health equities, for example, and, and really do that within our own system. Why not? And so that's something that I really tried to grow. And luckily we had at NYU, and then really that, that was one of the big motivators for why we wanted to move, why, why I really was attracted to the Utah position. We had some terrific champions within the organization who really believed in that vision. And, and we were able to build, for example, you know, the new population science departments that, that were really focused on this work. Yeah, no, fantastic. So let's move on then to talk about the University of Utah. After four years as the Senior Vice President Chief Scientific Officer at NYU, you moved to Salt Lake City and assumed the triple roles of Senior Vice President for Health Sciences, Chief Executive Officer of the University of Utah Health System, and Dean of the School of Medicine at the University of Utah. 
Tell us how that opportunity came together for you and, and what was the scope of your responsibilities across those three domains? The opportunity was really unanticipated. So I had, I was very happy at NYU. I had, was never looking, you know, when people reached out to me, I always declined those. But what had happened was really pretty serendipitous. So at the time I had been, as you mentioned, sort of focused on advancing the research enterprise at NYU. And at that time, well, a couple of things had happened. So first, I was very interested in this issue that you had just asked me about of how our health system and research arms could really work together to advance our healthcare system. That was one thing that was very much on our mind, on my mind. And the second thing that had was sort of fortuitous was in that year, NYU had come out, our clinical enterprise. So every year, all of the academic medical centers were ranked in terms of quality and safety by Vizient. They were called University Health System Consortium at the time, but now they're Vizient. And in that year, NYU was ranked number 10. It was the first time we had hit the top 10. And so we were very proud of it. We were the only system in New York City that was in the top 10. We were bragging about it everywhere. And that year, the University of Utah was number one. So interesting. At the same time, I had visited a friend of mine at Mass General who had given me a book written by a friend of his that had talked about Intermountain, also based in Salt Lake City, another health system, that had been using their data to do some really innovative things in the health delivery side. And of course, I was very interested in this model as we were just talking about. So I bought the book for Bob Grossman and I bought the book for everybody in the C-suite, actually. And I said, hey, guys, we really ought to go out to Salt Lake City. And, you know, you can get in a weekend of skiing, too, if you want to. <laughs> and let's go check out what they're doing at Intermountain and check out what the University of Utah is doing to be number one. And I remember Bob saying to me, nah, I like skiing in Aspen better. <laughs> and just that week, Jeff, just that week, this headhunter calls me up and says, hey, there, we have this job at the University of Utah. Do you want to take a look? And I remember thinking, well, it's so funny that you're calling me up because I have just been talking about Salt Lake City to my colleagues. And he said, well, just, but I said, to him, I'm not looking, you know, I, I love my job. He said, well, then just come on out and we'll introduce you to the Intermountain people. You can see what Utah is doing around quality and why they're number one. And it'll just be interesting to you. Next thing you know, I fell in love with the place. It was an amazing, amazing organization. So my responsibilities were, it is a, it is one of those integrated health systems where the academic enterprise, the school of medicine and the faculty practice all report up to the same individual who is responsible for the healthcare delivery side. So that, so this person is the dean of the medical school and the CEO of the health system. And at the same time, there's the rest of the health sciences campus, which included colleges of nursing, pharmacy, health, and eventually a brand new dental school, which we started when I was there together with the medical school. And so that is called the senior vice president for health sciences role. And so I had the privilege of serving in the capacity of, of taking on those three roles. That's what it was. That, that's how it had been for my predecessor. And so I just inherited that job from him. I, I see. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's an amazing bump up in responsibility. Once you accepted the opportunity, how did you prepare to assume those roles? Did you do anything in particular? I went around and asked people for advice. I got a lot of really good advice from people about all kinds of things. And I don't think there's a single piece of advice that I got that I didn't put into practice. 
at some point along the way, whether it was time management or working with leadership or trying to keep a really open communication style or, you know, whatever it was, it, it was really, really helpful. It was one of those things where I, I don't think I fully appreciated how underqualified I probably was for the job. And people there were very, very open, very excited about taking what was already a very successful organization, as I mentioned, number one in quality, and then kind of thinking about what else we could do and how we could continue to move forward and up that trajectory. So it was a very, very positive organization, really excited to, to welcome someone like me there, which was surprising. And man, I, I was learning every single day on that job, every single minute. No doubt. I mean, the, the list of accomplishments that you attained during your six-year tenure within those roles is really astonishing. And I'd like to ask you to just kind of take a deep breath and share with us a full measure of the activities that you pursued and the outcomes that you attained. Okay. Now I've been joking about time, but that literally would take us not hours, but days <laughs> because what, what you have to choose. Yeah. What happens in an organization like that is you have thousands and thousands of employees. Let's just be, let's just be, you know, really clear about this. I am one person in that organization. Now, by virtue of being the head of the health sciences, I can somehow magically, it's like the royal we, I can magically claim credit for everything that is done, at least everything good that is done uh, by the thousands of people there. But in fact, really what happened was it was already a great organization when I got there. My predecessor, Loris Betts, had already done some amazing things. You know, he completely turned us around in patient satisfaction, for example. And in the course of doing that, he had started to tap into something that I further tried to, to advance, which was unleashing the incredible potential of the people in the organization, who, as I mentioned before, were already very high-performing, very positive, very aspirational, and very collaborative highly, highly collaborative group of people. And so what, you know, some of the things that we were able to do on the delivery side, you know, really moving, continuing on patient satisfaction, but kind of advancing some of that work into thinking about costs of care and reducing costs or bridging across the campus and collaborative research, you know, whether it's creating a population health and more health services research programs that extended across the campus or, building, you know, a video gaming program and innovation center with engineering and business school and, and medicine. I mean, all of these areas were, and, and there, there are so many because we had so many great people who wanted, who had the appetite for and wanted to, had the energy and just threw themselves into building something really new, exciting, great, or, or just improving whatever it is we were already doing. And so that's why it was such a delight to be there and to lead that organization. And then now, as you <laughs> sort of intimate, to take credit for all the wonderful things that happened, but were actually really done by many, many people. You mentioned that when you began, it was number one in quality at the University of Utah. And that was an area that you clearly helped to lean into the University maintained its top 10 status throughout uh, these years and once again reached number one, I think, in your final year there. You know, if you wouldn't mind, take us through some of the details of what made the University of Utah Hospitals high ranking before you arrived and what did you do to further enhance its capabilities to keep it at the top? 
Well, one thing that I think people don't realize was that our IT and data infrastructure at the University of Utah was really top notch. There had been a guy who I actually had the privilege of meeting and interviewing even before he passed away named Homer Warner, who was one of the first chairs of biomedical informatics in the country. He was really a visionary. He was, you know, back in the day when mainframes took up whole rooms, he had this idea that we should start using computers in medicine. And he actually, his team helped build Intermountains infrastructure. So one of the reasons why Intermountain has been so successful as well as a, as more of a community-based health system, as well as the University of Utah as an academic system is because of his vision and because of the, the capabilities that he built in. So with that infrastructure, we were able to do, just do a lot more with our data. The data, of course, we are also always continuously improving. You know, there was the culture of that already, but we were on very, very strong foundation. And it meant that we could, for example, when we were working on quality, even when we were working on patient satisfaction, and then subsequently when we moved more into the costing side, we were able to map out, we were able to, let's just take costing, for example, we were able to work out the costs of care mapped by DRG, by you know every sort of episode of care, DRG or ICD, at the time, ICD-9 codes, now 10. And feed that data back to clinicians so that they could see what it costs us to provide the care, whether it was a hip operation or a pneumonia patient or whatever it was. And we were able to do that within four months of having the idea. So that just speaks to the, you know, it's always, if you invest in really good infrastructure, you could just do anything. That's that's actually the main problem across the entire country. If we could only imagine if we had a good public health infrastructure, what we could have done after COVID. Anyway, I'm going on a little bit of a tangent there, but those were some of the capabilities that really helped the University of Utah. And we expanded on that. So one of the things that we did when I was there also, which I thought was also very important, was we set up our own health insurance plan. Again, thinking about data, we understood that if we had more data, our data could inform the health plan, if the health plan was getting information from data outside of our perspective. So for example, if they were getting information, the patients weren't filling their pharmacy, their prescriptions, or if they were getting, patients were getting seen outside of the University of Utah on their plan, we could get alerted. And by working together with the plan and having our data and our plan data all within the same, under the same umbrella, we could actually end up with much better outcomes for our patients. So a lot of that work was really generated by having just really strong data and really strong infrastructure and really strong experts in informatics who understood that. You know, it also seems that it was a culture that was really open to innovation and to exploring new approaches. And, you know, inertia can be a powerful force in organizations. And as a change agent, I'm interested in understanding what have you found to be useful strategies to overcome inertia in the interest of the pursuit of innovation? I think you're right that there was definitely a culture of innovation at the University of Utah. I'd say that there were maybe a couple of things that I would attribute to what you just described, the sort of tension between status quo maybe and being willing to embrace or even pursue something new. And one of those is, well, there's a couple of things I'd say. One is the vision of what it is that we're trying to achieve that is a better future than today. You know, it's not change for change's sake. 
it's because we have we're looking at massive let's say let's say the world today we're thinking about massive disparities in healthcare or we're looking at significant challenges in terms of climate change and the the unexpected events that are going to impact our communities whatever the issue is there's something urgent and there's something that we need to respond to and so that is a galvanizing force for all of us because we're all it's the north star that people talk about you know what is that north star that we're trying to get to I think another component that's very important is a culture of collaboration across different disciplines. Because often when you're dealing with really difficult, almost intractable problems, you need to have people who bring a whole different set of tools to the table. There's a guy named Scott Page from the University of Michigan who wrote this book called The Difference, which is really all about this, that when you have large, complex problems, really a diversity of perspectives, a diversity of capabilities is essential to solving it. And I think that that also, you know, at the University of Utah, that diversity of capability in a very collegial environment is really fun. It's just fun. It's fun to meet people who do different things, who have different perspectives, because you learn something every time you talk to them. You know, when we got the business school and the engineering school and the medical school folks together to invent new video games, for, for patients with, you know, various, you know, whether it was rehab or whatever, it was just fun. It's really fun to do that. And I think that you never underestimate the motivation around, you know, just enjoying yourself as part of it. It's not work. It's actually really pleasurable. And then I say, I guess the third thing, so one is the North Star. The second is sort of a diversity of perspectives and bringing people together in that way. And then I think the third thing is the absence of barriers, liberating people, enabling them, making them feel like they can take risks, that they're not going to be penalized because somehow they've gone off the safe track. You know, the safe track is just to stick to what I do every day and don't, you know, don't get out of line, but to kind of create a culture where taking risks is actually rewarded. And, you know, if it works, great. If it doesn't work, that's okay. It was good that you tried, you know, and that's something that I saw a lot when I was at Verily and Google in the tech world that I don't see as much in academia. I think we could bring a little bit more of that in to academia. It could really help us. It would liberate us and it'd be certainly better for the next younger generations, I think. And it would enable us to achieve more progress faster. So you mentioned Verily, and I think it's a good opportunity now to sort of focus there. After your term in Utah, you made another bold pivot, and you joined Verily as the president and founder of Verily Health Platforms. I suspect that most of our listeners know Verily, but for those who might not, what is Verily? Oh, sure. Verily is a company that was originally called Google Life Sciences. It came out of Google X. It was purpose-built to commercialize, in the beginning, commercialize life science products, really focusing on working with pharmaceutical companies and kind of, you know, getting from bench to bedside faster with the new medications and devices. And after a few years, was rebranded Verily, became Verily when Google became Alphabet. We became Verily. And I was brought in because at that stage, we had learned a lot about health data. We had been doing a lot of different projects, actually. And the company was really interested in how we could focus our know-how, whether it was big data, whether it was understanding patients and and clinicians, whatever it was, all of our know-how, into thinking about products and services for the clinical delivery side. How could we really focus on improving healthcare? And so we called that Health Platforms. 
It was really a startup, totally a startup. And I was brought in to lead the startup to create the vision and then to start to build it. Yeah, what what a phenomenal, phenomenal opportunity. And there's a number of aspects of this opportunity that I really want to explore with you. I guess the the first one is you, you already articulated the fact that the goal was really the development of products and services. And that's a little different from, you know, the academic ethos and the academic mindset. To what extent did you sort of lean right into the idea of product development and the product development cycle? Or did you feel a tension between wanting to sort of have the size and scope of academic consideration without necessarily having to, you know, deliver a product that would be associated with revenue generation where, you know, that kind of business performance was a key driver? Uh, Well, the key thing was my mindset at the time. So I had come out of six years at the University of Utah and had a sabbatical where I'd written this book called The Long Fix, which gave me the opportunity to really reflect on what was happening with healthcare reform in this country. I shared a lot of lessons in that book from all over the country, you know, had the opportunity to interview people not unlike the way you're interviewing me, but interview people across the country and really learn about their success stories and their failures. And had kind of distilled in my mind a reasonable framework for thinking about what was broken in our healthcare system and some ways in which we could really start to to improve it. And one of the reasons why I was talked into this job, because in the beginning, I actually declined. I thought for the very reason that you're talking about but maybe you're, you're, you're more, more polite, but others might have said, Vivian, are you out of your mind? I mean, you know, what do you know about <laughs> building tech businesses? What attracted me to it in the end, what the leader said to me that sort of pushed me back into thinking about it was I had seen so many success stories across the country where people had figured out something in their health system and done something really interesting, but had never scaled you know, we were never able to scale solutions. People always say, if you've seen one academic medical center, you've seen one. And one thing that Google had definitely figured out was how to scale solutions. And so that's how I was talked into the job. Vivian, if you want to scale solutions, if you want to think about scale, which is what healthcare needs, if you want to think innovatively, you know, which we also need, this is the place to do it. And so I came into the role Yes, of course, my job was to create businesses, but really I was focused on how we could fix healthcare. And I believe that the solution to fixing healthcare was going to be at the intersection of businesses, the public and private sector, and between businesses and academia. And, and you know, it was going to, were going to be a lot of people involved in this fixing. And certainly the resources that a company like Google or Alphabet could bring could be substantial and kind of really make a difference. What were some of the biggest differences and surprises about leading within the context of a technology-rooted company that is under the umbrella of a publicly traded company as opposed to being in a university? You know, the the differences were night and day. There were so many differences. We were very fortunate because we were a startup, you know, verily health platforms was really a startup. I mean, talk about a startup. When I started, I had one seventh of an administrative assistant and me. 
Because we, we were really starting. When she said to me, oh, I'm, I'm supporting six other people, I thought to myself, so do I, do I get you Tuesday mornings? I mean, how, how does that even work? You know, having come from being a CEO before that, that was really, really, really interesting to me. So we were a startup within Verily, which is a startup within, of course, one of the most capitalized, one of the largest businesses in the world. So it was a very, very interesting environment. Things that I learned that really surprised me, actually, many of these themes are the subject of the book that I'm working on now. So stay tuned. Whatever I'm not able to share with you now eventually will will come out. There's a lot, there are a lot of observations. But one thing I think that really surprised me, I guess. Many things when I went into the business, I sort of expected, like I expected there to be phenomenal engineers. I expected people to really understand data, to really understand AI and all the ways in which models could sort of drive product improvement and drive insights that could help us get better and better. You know, those are things sort of I came in expecting. One of the things that I really didn't fully appreciate, which I think in the end turned out to be one of the most important assets that we had, was our user-centered design, user experience researchers, the whole focus on behavioral psychology, the whole focus on understanding people as human beings with different motivations, with different concerns, different anxieties, and thinking that products and services should not be one size fits all, but really need to be personalized to each individual. And here we are in, in healthcare where we've been focused so much on standardization, which is important. We need care pathways. We need evidence-based medicine, you know, that kind of personalization. You know, we don't need more doctors deciding randomly whatever to do. You know, we need that to be standardized. But we've lost in that standardization narrative, we've lost the ability to think about engaging people in a personalized way, communicating shared decision-making, you know, all these kinds of things are very, are deeply personal. And thinking about customers or now patients in that totally different way from within Verily was really transformative for me and really, really influenced the way in which we thought about our products and our services. And I tried, you know, as we talked with various health systems and, and other people that we were partnering with and, and selling into, to try to get people into that mindset, because I still think as much of as much as we have moved into more patient-centered care, we still are pretty physician-clinician-centered. We still think the epicenter of the universe is our tertiary, quaternary healthcare system, not you know whether a person is is biking to work or you know able to get green vegetables or taking their blood pressure pills at home. You know, we that, that's still not how we focus. So we still have a lot of bridging to go to. Yeah, you know, I'm intrigued by the Verily portfolio and the fact that, I mean, there's really some fascinating capabilities. I think the, you know, the continuous non-invasive diabetes monitoring is just, you know, absolutely stellar in its implications. But I want to ask you about the focus of Verily and its capabilities toward the thornier issue of managing acute care. And in particular, how hospital care can be maddeningly inefficient and wasteful. And it would seem that a hugely impactful moonshot goal would be the development of precision clinical decision support and predictive analytics that are driven by input from the electronic health record and real-time monitors in order to help to really direct efficient care. But I'm not seeing that as a part of that portfolio, and that would seem to be the the great opportunity. Is that 
too difficult to, or too broad of a problem to attack? Well, I, I can't really speak for Verily now since I've left the organization. Yeah. I will say that almost every conversation felt like there was a there was a time when we would have conversations with health systems and they would say, could you just could you just fix our and then fill in the blank? You know, whatever the system is that they were dissatisfied with, because as you know, most health systems have a number of different operating systems that they're running, including the electronic health record system, but many, many others, you know, hundreds that are feeding in and the lack of interoperability amongst them and the inability to really extract the insights with effective analytics is really, really frustrating. So that it definitely is a huge challenge. And of course, it's something that we did spend some time thinking about and working on. I think that, you know, one of the things that was an area that was more, was maybe more attractive was the ability to think about how we could work with patients or people directly to, again, as I mentioned earlier, leverage more of that understanding of what's important to people and to, to kind of layer on that the analytics, the AI, the machine learning kind of algorithms that we have, as well as some of the data science. You know, one of our one of our businesses, so in the end, we grew three startups from scratch, and then I inherited a couple of more businesses. So our portfolio had five businesses. And when you asked me earlier about the differences, you know, one of the differences was in five years, we did three full startups and and kind of nurtured two more. Whereas in academia, you know, maybe after two or three years, I might have my R01 funded. I don't know, maybe to put forward some hypotheses, you know, so that, that as an example of a difference, you know, but so one, one of the businesses that we started from scratch, not surprisingly had to do with COVID. And this is an example of kind of where, where I think we could bring maybe different capabilities to the table that were, I think, just really interesting. So you may not remember this, but in around in March of 2020, I think President Trump went in the Rose Garden and, and announced that, you know, Google was going to solve the COVID testing problem. As you remember, at the time, we had a shortage of COVID tests. And when he said Google, actually, in the end, it meant verily. So, <laughs> so we kicked into high gear. We were already working on it. So this, is, this wasn't new to us, but the urgency kind of, of course, was escalated when the announcement came out. So one of the businesses that we grew was really focused on helping employers and universities and others do COVID testing. Now, there was a lot of that development had to do with what we were able to innovate in the lab, pool testing, all kinds of advances in terms of lab testing capability. But one of the things that I thought was really interesting that we were able to do and really fun, which we also published, was to think about and to work with our customers to say, well, what really matters to you? Okay, first, it's that we can get all the testing done. But business owner X or university president Y, what do you, what, what's really most urgent for you at the moment? And what we heard back was, we have no ability to plan. We have no ability, you know, this, the ups and downs of this COVID and all these people going out or whatever. And it's just really disruptive. You know, one university president said, I have set aside so many rooms in case COVID hits that we can quarantine kids. But if I exceed that, I have to shut down again. You know, how do I know whether to do that? So one of the, one of the things that we built in that business was we leveraged our data science and we built some modeling features so that we could 
take the COVID testing results, take a lot of publicly available data about what was happening, you know, whatever the latest surge was, you know, it feels like we're in another one of these variants again now, who knows. But at the time, we could take that public data and we'd feed it into the models and we'd developed some pretty, pretty interesting, pretty sophisticated models in order to enable the employer or the president or whoever to be able to predict with a little bit more certainty what was going to happen in the next three to four weeks. And it turns out our, our, you know, in some cases, of course, limited ability to really test it, but in some cases where we had some ability to compare with other models, it was pretty successful. So this idea of kind of really thinking about how do we work with the not only the employees, but also the employers to leverage our capabilities was something that was really valuable and, and created value. Excellent. Fantastic. You, you mentioned your book, The Long Fix, and you know it really is a great book. And I want to encourage our listeners who have not yet read it to pick up a copy and, and to do so. It identifies dysfunctional elements in the U.S. healthcare system and offers strategies, most importantly, to address these dysfunctions with the goal of more efficient, effective, and, and safer healthcare. Obviously, time doesn't allow us to fully delve deeply into the book, but I do want to explore perhaps one topic from a radiologist perspective. Many physicians resonate with the principle of pay for results rather than pay for service or action, as you phrase it in the book. How do you believe radiologists can take the lead in establishing the value proposition of diagnostic imaging as a driver of actionability and a payment model that supports the use of imaging that explicitly contributes to that outcome? What a great question for me, but also for your audience to reflect on, because I think that's really fundamentally a strategic question for the whole profession. We see, you know, the rise of generative AI and other AI algorithms sort of challenging us on one side. And my answer to that question is, I've always believed that radiologists are probably the most important. Of course, pathologists are also important, but from a daily perspective, hugely important in terms of the diagnostic trajectory of a patient. And nowadays, actually with AI, with our big data capabilities, we are able to even potentially plot out for a given patient what their likely diagnostic course might be. And one could imagine, if you wanted to take a value-based approach to it, to say, you know, an exceptional radiologist would be someone who actually, well, a, a good radiologist would be somebody who would perform as expected in terms of the person's diagnostic pathway is kind of what expected. Maybe not an individual, but let's say averaged across the population. A really exceptional diagnostician radiologist would even be able to shorten that time or reduce the number of resources that are necessary in order for a patient to be diagnosed accurately, or let's say monitored during the course of therapy, for example, if we're able to identify early on that a very expensive chemotherapeutic agent or other agent is not working. These are all, you know, it's almost like actuarial models for insurance companies. These are just predictive models that we could be developing today that the data are really available. And if we were to start to say, hey, you know what, we will take responsibility. We're going to take responsibility for the accurate diagnosis of our patients. And if we do better than that, I think we should be rewarded for that. One of the things that would be beneficial to that is that with that model is that we would also then drive these AI folks to say, help us be better at this. This is a partnership. It's not about AI replacing us. It's about how can supercharged radiologists armed with these AI additional insights, be even better diagnosticians. 
synthesize all that data even better together, incorporate not just imaging, but also omics and other pieces of the diagnostic puzzle so that we can really help our patients and reduce the cost of the care and improve outcomes. I think if we were willing to take that and own that, I think that would be a very interesting business model for us going forward. Fantastic. Terrific. Vivian, I wonder if you recall years ago, you and I were speaking at a postgraduate course where the organizers offered childcare for attendees and faculty. And I was sitting in the audience between lectures and you were on stage speaking when two little girls came racing down the center aisle screaming, mommy, mommy, and ascending the stairs to the stage. They attached themselves to each of your legs and looked like they were not planning to let go. You calmly paused your lecture, looked down and said something like, girls, mommy's busy right now. I need you to go back so mommy can finish. And then you looked up, eye searching for a helpful hand, which soon arrived and escorted your daughters back to childcare so you could finish your lecture. The tenderness that you showed in that moment was very heartwarming. And I remember it like it was yesterday. I wonder if, if you remember that and if you might share a little bit about your family and your family life with us. <laughs> Gosh, if I sort of imagine that, I, my memory of that is that no one I knew was in that audience that could ever remind me of that episode again. So I must have blocked out the fact that you were there. That was really one of those, you know, it is one of those moments when you think, really, is this really happening to me? So yes, my husband and I are the proud parents of four lovely daughters. And I know you are also a proud parent as well. And they are the joy of our lives. And it was a little tricky sometimes, I have to say, you know, balancing. Uh, balance is not even the right word, but managing work and family at the same time. When we went out to Utah, I remember they were three, five, seven, and nine. And one of the best things about the Utah job was that it came with a house. So a donor had, had left a house for the president and a house for the senior vice president. And so I remember, you know, on the one hand, one might say that it's pretty tough to take a job like that with kids that age. But when we moved into that house, my kids thought it was the best thing because it had a swimming pool. It was like we moved into the world's best bed and breakfast and then we stayed. So as you know, children give you great, great joy. And they, they helped actually, they really, in many ways, helped me keep my sanity through some of the, you know, it can be tough in our, in our kind of jobs. So, so nothing like crawling around on the floor with your kid or dressing up for Halloween parties or whatever it is to, to keep you sane. Absolutely. And, you know, now that your, your girls are a bit older now, what do you do to unwind and recharge with such a busy agenda? You know, I spend a lot of time still with the, with the family and things that they're interested in are things I end up getting drawn into. So for example, right now I'm actually in another career pivot. I finished a Verily last year. I'm now at the Harvard Business School. And while I am, as I mentioned, working on this new book project, I'm really focusing now on a new direction, which is climate change. And that's something that my kids really of course, I've been aware of climate change for a long time, but my kids left a few books on my bookshelf and recommended a few podcasts. And so about maybe a couple of years ago, I decided, you know, I wanted to see out 
the last launch at Verily of the last startup, but then I really wanted to move to focus on climate change. So I spent a lot of time reading and learning about that and spending a lot of time with that and of course traveling and doing other things. Yeah, no, that that's fantastic. So at this point, what does the future hold for Vivian Lee? You're writing a book, you're thinking about climate change. What, what do you foresee for yourself in the next few years? I don't really know. That's such a great question. I'd like to do something that would be helpful in the climate change space. And because I'm still scaling the learning curve, the areas that I'm trying to learn a lot about now and trying to contribute to now are at the intersection of climate change and health, not surprisingly, since that's been my career. I'm interested in in climate change, really the, the broader issue of climate change. But I think thinking about it, starting to think about it from the perspective of how can our healthcare systems respond to climate change, support our communities, be more resilient. And at the same time, how can we also reduce the carbon impact, the climate impact, environmental impact of healthcare? Healthcare, you you may or may not know this, but contributes about eight and a half to 10% of emissions for in the US. And so we are also big polluters. And there are really huge opportunities. We've always wanted to reduce waste. We've always wanted to move towards more primary care and preventive care. And if we can do some of those things, it's also going to reduce our carbon footprint. So I've been thinking a little bit about that and trying to really think about and and listen to other people and get advice about how I can be helpful in this space, because that's really what I want to do. Well, Dr. Vivian Lee, I have no doubt that you will be very impactful in your pursuit of this topic. What you have contributed in healthcare, in radiology, is unique. And I am so appreciative that you have taken the time to share your journey with us, your remarkably clear view of priorities and directions for us, and your great sense of direction for healthcare. And as I say, you know, look forward to seeing the impact in climate change. Thank you so much for joining us today on Taking the Lead. Thank you, Jeff. It's been wonderful to be with you. Taking the Lead is a production of the Radiology Leadership Institute and the American College of Radiology. Special thanks go to Anne-Marie Pascoe, Senior Director of the RLI and co-producer of this podcast. To Port City Films for production support. Morgan Schmittendorf and Abby Colson for our marketing and social media. Brian Russell, Jen Pendo, and Crystal McIntosh for technical and web support. And Shane Yoder for our theme music. Finally, thank you, our audience, for listening and for your interest in radiology leadership. I'm your host, Jeff Rubin, from the University of Arizona College of Medicine in Tucson. We welcome your feedback, questions, and ideas for future conversations. You can reach me on Twitter at G-E-O-F-F-R-U-B-I-N or using the hashtag RLITakingTheLead. Alternatively, send us an email at RLI at ACR.org. I look forward to you joining me next time on Taking the Lead.